BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. You might think we're heading into a low time of year for suicides because they peak during the cold, dark months of winter. But, in fact, suicide peaks during the spring and early summer. This is just one example of the popular beliefs around suicide that turn out to be myths. Here to unpack more of these myths, as well as the truths around this poorly understood subject, is Rory O'Connor, the leader of the Suicidal Behavior Research Laboratory and the author of When It Is Darkest, why people die by suicide, and what we can do to prevent it. Today on the show, Rory discusses possible reasons for why suicides go up in the warmer months and why men die by suicide more often than women. He explains that suicide doesn't happen without some warning signs and why someone's improved mood might be one of them. In the second half of the show, Rory walks us through the real reasons people move from having suicidal thoughts to acting on them and what works to prevent suicide. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is suicide. All right, Rory O'Connor, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, Brett. So you are a professor of psychology who researches suicide and suicide prevention. I'm curious, what led you down this career path? Well, that's an interesting question. Like many things in life, this path was serendipitous. So as an undergraduate student in Belfast in Northern Ireland, I'd been studying depression, and I thought I was going to continue my undergraduate work into looking at depression rather than suicide itself. But then as things happens, I got a call in the summer of, I think it must have been the summer of 1994, so quite a while ago, and the person who turned out to be my PhD supervisor told me that there was an opportunity for a funded scholarship PhD program on suicide. And so that's where it all began, just that phone call, and I decided that that's the direction I would go And I suppose what's quite interesting from my point of view is that, well, clearly suicide is the most devastating of outcomes from depression and other mental health problems. But I suppose I didn't quite envisage where that journey would take me. And in particular, that man, that phone call, my PhD supervisor, the person without whom I wouldn't have done the research on suicide, sadly, some years later, he took his own life. And I often think back to that phone call and really, what I often wonder, what was in his mind at that time? Why did he ask me? He wasn't a suicide researcher. So it's just funny how these things happen, but I'm incredibly grateful to him because it genuinely was like a sliding doors moment which changed my life. What did your family think when you told him, I'm going to do my PhD in suicide? Well, well, my mother in particular, um, 
she was quite concerned because she knows me as a person and she just knew that everything I would do, I would put my heart and soul into. And so her big concern was the impact on me, on my own mental health. And so, yeah, so one of the first questions she asked me was, my God, you're not going to kill yourself, are you? That was her genuine fear that if I was so immersed in this. And I suppose that question well, it was a really important question to ask and something I remind myself of daily, of reminding myself to look after my own mental health, as well as now the mental health of the people I work with here in my team in Glasgow. So you've written a book called When It Is Darkest, Why People Die by Suicide and What We Can Do to Prevent It, which is a book where you've taken the research you've done on suicide and suicide prevention and presented it for a lay audience. We're going to talk about this book, but before we do, I think it's important to talk about how to talk about suicide. I'm sure a lot of people have noticed maybe in the past decade or so, when we talk about suicide or someone who's taken their own life, we say, you, you hear people say he died by suicide instead of he committed suicide. Why that shift? Yeah, I mean, it really has been a marked shift, I would say, in the last 20 years. So, And the reason for the shift is because the term committing suicide, it harks back to a time in many countries where suicide was illegal. And so it harks back to that criminal sort of undertone that was seen as a criminal offence. And indeed, in the United States and in the UK, Thankfully, suicide is no longer a criminal offence, but there are still many countries in the world in which it is a criminal offence. And I just know from speaking to countless people who are bereaved by suicide um, or people who've been suicidal themselves, they often are quite upset about that criminal over or undertone. So for that reason, I think we shifted and be much more careful in our language because to my mind, we can talk about people dying by suicide. It conveys the same message and it's not going to cause distress to those who are bereaved. So in all the work that I do, I avoid the term committing suicide for that reason. What's the state of suicide in the West today? Are rates increasing or decreasing? In, in some senses, there's no simple answer to that question. So maybe try and answer it in a couple of ways. If I look at the suicide rates, say, over the last 40 years. Now, if I take a global perspective first, so on a global perspective, the suicide rates have decreased by about 30% or thereabouts over the last 40 years or so. However, if you try and disentangle then where the decreases have happened, you see that much of the decline in suicides happened in Asian countries, in, in India and in China and, and, and other Asian countries, largely in China. And so that tells you a pattern, yes, on a global context in those low and middle income countries historically, the suicide rates have been decreasing. Now, if I take then the last 20 years and focus in on, say, the United States or the United Kingdom, you see a different pattern. So indeed, in the United States, you've seen this upward trend in suicides. And then if I look in the UK, say over the three or four years before the pandemic hit, similar to the United States, the suicide rates were increasing. And in Australia, New Zealand, other Western countries, in those recent years, the suicide rates have been on the increase. Now, when the pandemic hit, many of us working in the field of suicide research and suicide prevention were really, really concerned about the potential impact of COVID-19 on the suicide rates. Now, thankfully, our concerns were not realised 
because the suicide rates, broadly speaking, did not increase in basically in a global context. And indeed, with a colleague, Jane Perkis from Melbourne University, she led this big international initiative of 33 countries across the globe. And they covered the first, I think it was, 15 months of the pandemic. And within those first 15 months, broadly speaking, the suicide rates did not increase. Now, there were some exceptions. For example, Japan, there's some signals now that the suicide rates might be increasing in Japan. But the broad picture is that the pandemic did not see the increase that we feared. But now my concern is, and we're starting to see this in the United States, in the UK, and in other countries, is now with the cost of living crisis and the sort of potential economic turmoil and the Ukraine crisis and other things going on in the world, our concern is that suicide rates are starting to go up again. So we had this period of sort of when they didn't increase during the pandemic, we need to be really, really vigilant moving forward. Are there demographics groups that are more susceptible to suicide, say by age or sex? Yes. Well, if we just focus on Western countries or high-income countries, suicide rates are significantly higher in men than in women. In the United States and in the UK, about three quarters of all suicides are by men. But then if we look to other countries, to low- and middle-income countries, we see less of a disparity between males and females. But in, I think it's like every single country in the world, men outnumber women in suicide. Now, if we look then at age profiles, again, you have to nuance this. There's slightly different patterns in different countries. But broadly speaking, suicide is rare before puberty. And then when puberty hits, and those periods three from puberty right up to your mid-20s, you see this increase in suicidal thoughts, behaviors, and deaths by suicide. And again, there's slight differences in countries, but in the UK, for example, the leading middle-aged men are the group most at risk of suicide. And in other countries, older age men are at increased risk or the highest risk group. But the concern many of us have is that we're starting to see this increase in young or youth suicides again. And that really reminds me of when I first started researching this field in the 1990s, the biggest risk group were young men. And if we think back to the 1990s, we just all emerged from a recession or real economic turmoil. And my concern now is we have a similar pattern. We've gone through a recession a few years ago. We now have this cost of living crisis and the sort of broader uncertainty in the world. And I, my concern is that young people are being maybe even more at risk and that their suicide rates may start to increase faster. So we need to be so, so careful and protect our young people. Speaking to the, the sex breakdown, something that I've read, and I want to see if this is true. Is it true that women attempt suicide more often than men, but men are more likely to actually take their lives because they use more you know, lethal means? Yes, that, broadly speaking, that's a correct statement. I agree with that. Is that yes, um, women are more likely to engage in non-fatal suicidal behaviour. However, the explanation for that differential isn't as straightforward as, as saying it's all down to the method that's been used. That's certainly part of it. We know that men are more likely to use more lethal methods and obviously therefore more likely to die, say, on a first attempt. 
But it is more complicated than that. And I think we need to look at issues around masculinity, what it means to be a man in today's society, issues around the way we structure and tailor treatment. So the question I often ask is, we know there are effective treatments, psychological treatments, which reduce risk of suicidal behavior. But the question is, do they work for men? And are they tailored for men? And that's linked to the fact that the way men help seek is perhaps different from women. And we know that men are less likely to seek help for mental health problems. And so what we should be asking is, instead of blaming men for not seeking help, which sometimes is part of the narrative, we should be saying, actually, perhaps the treatments and support coupled with the stigma around help-seeking, mental health, masculinity, these are all contributing to a situation, like a perfect storm of factors, together with the increased use of more lethal methods of suicide. And that's really the complexity is the answer to the question of why there are more male suicides than female suicides. What are some of the biggest myths around suicide and how can those myths get in the way of helping people who are susceptible to suicide? To my mind, one of the, probably the single most common myth that I have come across is that if you ask somebody whether they're suicidal, it will plant the idea in their head. And it's really important that we score that myth because there is no evidence at all that by asking somebody whether they're suicidal, that it actually will make them suicidal. There's just no evidence. However, there's now quite a bit of evidence showing the opposite, showing that actually if you ask somebody that question, and I agree it's a difficult question to ask, but if you ask that question, ask somebody directly whether they're suicidal, there's evidence showing that actually it can get them the help that they need. And I often describe that question as being potentially the start of a life-saving conversation. So that would be myth number one. Then another myth I think I often think it's important to highlight, Brett, and that is this idea that, and, and it's just, it comes from a place of real sadness and heartbreak, is that the number of people that I have encountered over the years who both loved ones as well as health professionals have come up and told me the story that the person who they've lost to suicide had seemed okay, had seemed well in the days and weeks before they died. And so the myth is that if somebody, if there's this improvement in mood that's associated with reduced risk, that's a myth because it's the opposite in too many cases. And I suppose to clarify, and I'll, I'll make it clear what I mean in a second. So what the work or the research and sort of evidence suggests is that if there is an unexplained improvement in mood, it could mean that the person has resolved to end their life. And because they've resolved to end their life as a way of dealing with their pain, their mood lifts because they find a solution to their pain, a solution to their problems. And the reason it's concerning is as a person's mood lifts, their cognitive capacity, their motivation, their ability to plan and carry out the suicidal act increases. So the message on that myth is, if there is any unexplained improvement in mood, if somebody has been in a a depressive episode, please check in with them to try and understand why their mood is lifted. Now, 
Of course it could be. Their mood has lifted because their treatment has kicked in. Either their medication or their psychosocial treatment has kicked in or their crisis has abated. But the concern is if somebody seemingly improves in mood and emotional well-being and you don't know why, always, always check in to ensure they're doing okay. Okay, so if someone's mood improves, it can actually be a danger sign because they may just be feeling relieved that they've made the decision to stop struggling and take their own life. And another related myth is that someone will always be depressed before they die by suicide. Mental illness is correlated with suicide, but sometimes someone hasn't been depressed, and we're going to talk more about this later, but they haven't been depressed, but then they experience some sort of you know big setback or humiliation that leads them into this spiral of suicidal thoughts. And these things relate to another myth, which is that there aren't any warning signs before a suicide. And, you know, a lot of time when someone takes their own life, their friends and family, you know, they're shocked and they say they didn't, you know, they didn't see any signs it was coming. But your research shows that there are typically signs. They can just be hard to recognize. The sad reality is that um, warning signs for suicide are difficult to spot, but there are warning signs. And so the things I would often highlight are changes in behavior. So that could be changes in eating, sleeping, drinking, like sleeping in particular, because we know that disrupted sleep, sleep problems are associated with suicide risk. Because obviously anything, if your sleep is interrupted, that's your that's a basic, in biological terms, we would describe it as a basic homeostatic function. If you don't sleep well, your problem solving is affected, your mood is affected, your self-regulation is affected. So changes in these sort of basic processes are important to look out for. But other things like, and this is certainly only probably applies to some cases, people who are starting to get their life in order, their life affairs in order. That would be another warning sign that's something that person may have resolved um, to die by suicide. And then obviously if somebody has been bereaved by suicide themselves, or if they've experienced a marked loss, either in status or in relationships, things like that, those marked changes can have an impact. So again, I would be checking in with somebody as well. Also, people who are talking about feeling trapped and hopeless and feeling a burden on those around them, because we know that sense of burdensomeness is at the heart of the sort of suicidal thinking. The person feels, actually, if I end up my life, the people around me would be better off if I was dead. And so those are the sorts of things I would highlight as sort of the warning signs. But the reality, sadly, is like our ability to predict suicide is no better than chance. It's no better than the toss of a coin. It's really difficult to predict who will die by suicide. But we should be still checking in with people if we are concerned, of course. Is there a seasonality to suicide? Because uh, I think maybe there's a common belief out there that a lot of suicides happen in the winter because it's dark and cold, um, you know, maybe the holidays make people feel sad. Is is that true? Well, the holidays bit is, is probably true, but not necessarily the winter bit. So the, again, the best evidence, if you try and bring together all the evidence from across the world, the best evidence suggests that suicides actually peak in spring, summertime. So the increase in that period, and actually in December, they're low and actually lowest on Christmas Day, 
but then they peak on New Year's Day. And so the question is, well, why do you see this seasonal effect? And the short answer is we don't know for certain. Part of it could be due with, as we move seasons, there's a change in our sleeping patterns and our physical activity. It could be maybe linked to, if we look at sort of occupations at risk of suicide, as you move into spring, perhaps there's increased work-related stress, say if you're working in the agricultural sector, if you're a farmer or whatever it may be, so you can see increased stress and risk there. But it could also be the fact that as we move into spring and summer and the brightness and sort of vitality of spring and summer, if you're struggling with your mood, there's that mismatch or that dissonance between your internal world and your external world. And perhaps that's part of the explanation as well. So yes, there are seasonality effects, but we need to do more research to understand why they persist. You know, one, I saw this article in The Atlantic. This is speculative, but a factor that might contribute to that seasonality is uh, in the spring, there's allergies and inflammation can contribute potentially contribute to depression and mental illness. Again, this is speculative, but I thought that was interesting. I saw that in a couple months ago. No, absolutely. And I may have read that same article in the Atlantic, actually. And no, I think we need to look at the allergens and the rule of allergens, because as you say, there's growing evidence that impact on how, how they can activate some of the obviously biological systems, which are associated with mental health problems like depression. So I think that's an area we need to look at in much more detail. Because remember, like one of the things that certainly I've recognized more and more as I've studied suicide and suicide prevention is, is and I often describe it as, historically, we have either been too focused on the individual or too focused on the context in which an individual lives without bringing those together. So, so those people who do work on brain imaging and biology, that's all great. And those people who do work on social contexts and cultural factors, that's brilliant as well. But ultimately, as John sort of Don said, that idea of no man is an island, we need to recognize that each, if we're to understand suicide risk, we have to understand the individual in their context. And that context includes these wider environmental factors that you've mentioned, as well as, of, co- of course, things closer to home, like obviously relationship crises, mental health problems, bullying, unemployment, and so on. We need to look at the environmental context as well. And we'll talk about some of these factors because you've developed this uh, model, the Integrated Motivational Volitional Model of Suicide Behavior. Maybe we can talk about some of those factors in that model. But just broadly speaking, big picture, why do most people decide to take their own life? Well, so the answer to that question I often give is people, people end their life as a way of managing unbearable pain. And so for whatever it is, 703,000 people who die by suicide each year, there's a whole complex set of reasons which will lead to each one of those individuals dying by suicide. But I think the common thread is that those people feel trapped by unbearable pain, which is can be caused by a whole range of factors. It could be caused by the fact that your relationship ended or the fact that you were had experienced trauma as a child or the fact that your mental health problems are really, really unbearable. But the key driver is seeing suicide as the ultimate solution to your pain. And for like Edwin Snyderman, who's like a founding father of suicide prevention from the United States, often talked about this uh, idea of seeing suicide as a permanent solution 
to what are often temporary problems. And so for, for me to answer the question of why people die by suicide, the answer to that question is we need to understand what are the drivers to the mental pain by which an individual feels trapped by and they see no alternative, no way to end their pain, no solution to that pain, and the only solution is the ultimate solution, and that is to take their own life. So it's like the person, in essence, doesn't want to die they just want the pain to stop. They just can't bear the pain. And, uh, and maybe we're going to go on to talk about my model of suicide. That's at the heart of my model, that sense of entrapment. And, and then just say the sort of key premise of the model is that so suicidal thoughts emerge. So they come out of this sense of entrapment. But that sense of entrapment is triggered by feelings of defeat and humiliation. And those feelings of Defeat and humiliation are often triggered by loss, by shame, or by rejection. And so although that's the common spine to understand the emergence of suicidal thoughts, then the question goes, for every one of us who becomes suicidal, the pathways to defeat, the pathways to entrapment are unique. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try fast growing trees right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants and listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code manliness at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code manliness at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code manliness offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. 
By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, so one of the first things I did, I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. And now back to the show. So let's dig into the integrated motivational volitional model of suicide behavior that you developed that can help practitioners, but also other people, loved ones, or even individuals who might be experiencing suicidal ideation help them figure out like where they are in that path towards suicidal behavior. And the first part of the model is the pre-motivational phase. What are the factors there that can influence whether someone decides to take their own life? Yeah, so the pre-motivational phase is part one. There are three parts to the model. So the pre-motivational phase, the motivational phase, and the volitional phase. And so the pre-motivational phase is like the background context in which suicidal thoughts or behaviors may emerge. The motivational phase is a central, the middle bit of the model, and that's really trying to understand the emergence of suicidal thoughts. And then the third bit of the model is called the volitional phase, and that's trying to understand who is more likely to cross a precipice from thinking about suicide to acting on your thoughts. So going back then to the pre-motivational phase, the pre-motivational phase is really trying to understand what vulnerabilities do we all carry? So for example, we all have different vulnerabilities. They could be biological vulnerabilities. So for example, there's evidence that people with low levels of serotonin and other metabolites and its metabolites and other sort of neurotransmitters are associated with suicide risk. So that's a potential vulnerability factor, but it's never an inevitability. It's just a vulnerability factor. Like another vulnerability factor we've done 
quite a lot of work on is uh, on different types of perfectionism. And there's one type of perfectionism which is described as socially prescribed or just simply social perfectionism. And what that is, is that if you're high on social perfectionism, and I speak as somebody who is also high on social perfectionism, is that we're overly concerned about the expectations of others, such that we continually, we live our life thinking that we're letting others, important people in our lives down. And I describe it in the book, When It's Darkest, I describe people who have this high social perfectionism as basically having thin psychological skin, such that when the bows and arrows of life come at us, when negative events occur, our skin is much more likely to be pierced, sort of metaphorically. And so that's a sort of pre-motivational phase because the concern is that people who are high in social perfectionism are much more likely to feel defeated or humiliated when stuff happens to them. The social perfectionism is interesting. Is that uh, Will Storr, we had him on the podcast talk about his yeah. book about social status. He wrote an article about male suicide and he talked a lot about this social perfectionism and the role of that plays as well as status defeat in men can play in a man's susceptibility to suicide. Yeah, no, absolutely. I know Will, Will's a good guy and actually Will Storr interviewed me as part of that article and then obviously initially it was an article and then and then the book or one of his books and he's exactly right which is that social perfectionism is a really useful framework for us to try and understand as will has done understand male suicide but the way i've tried to conceptualize it is try to understand well how does it increase risk in my case from a psychological perspective and i think that idea of the the thin skinness is a useful way to think about that So we've got that vulnerability aspect. And then the other two bits are environmental influences and negative life events. They're the last two parts of that pre-motivational phase. And the environmental influences are really recognizing that, this idea that we know that there's a socioeconomic gradient to suicide and that basically people from more socially disadvantaged backgrounds are much more likely to die by suicide. Some estimates or you're three times more likely to die by suicide if you're from a socially disadvantaged background compared to a more affluent background. And now that's not to say that people from more affluent backgrounds don't take their own lives because they do, but the risk is higher when there's more social disadvantage. And then the last bit on the pre-motivational phase is we know that people who die by suicide or attempt suicide have experienced a disproportionate number of negative life events. And that's both in childhood as well as across the lifespan. And actually, when you look at the sort of psychophysiology of suicide risk, we also know that people who attempt suicide or die by suicide, their stress system, their cortisol system, remember cortisol is like the fight or flight hormone we need to sort of help us either defend ourselves or flee a threatening situation. The people that who are suicidal, their cortisol system is dysregulated, it's not working as well, so it adds to the vulnerability. Okay, so the pre-motivational phase, these are just sort of the background factors that are already in place in someone's life that could make them more vulnerable to suicidal thoughts. They won't necessarily lead to suicide, but they're potential vulnerabilities. So you move into the motivational phase of this. This is when ideation and intention formulation occurs. Yeah. And I think you said what usually kickstarts the ideation is 
some sort of defeat, whether you know you lose a relationship, you lose a job, etc. Yeah, absolutely. So I've touched on the motivational phase when I was answering one of the previous questions. That central idea that suicidal thinking is driven by, or it grows out of, feelings of defeat and humiliation from which you cannot escape. And it's that sense of mental pain, that entrapment, which drives the emergence of suicidal thoughts. And again, when we think about what then drives or causes defeat or humiliation, that'll be unique for all of us. It'll be different for every one of us. And defeat and humiliation, again, are often also driven by loss, rejection, or shame. So I think when we're trying to understand risk at an individual level, that's a really helpful way to think about it, is asking ourselves, what are the potential drivers to somebody feeling defeated or humiliated? And ultimately, what are the drivers to them feeling trapped? And then if we can identify those drivers, the causes of defeat, the causes of humiliation, we can hopefully, hopefully intervene either to change the thing that's leading to the defeat or humiliation, or if we can't change that, thinking of ways to support the individual through that sort of crisis time. Well, in this part of the model, you have this idea of, I think it's threat to self-moderators and motivational moderators. What are those? Yeah, so they're psychological factors. So we're trying to understand. So if we think about the model as a sort of horizontal line going from on the left-hand side, you've got defeat and humiliation. And then if you move from left to right, you move from feeling defeated to feeling trapped. And then you move from feeling trapped to suicidal. Now, so what the threat to self-moderators and motivational moderators are psychological factors which we hypothesize sort of facilitate or impede the movement from left to right. So that includes things like if you're a really good problem solver, social problem solver, and you're feeling defeated, well, actually, if I'm feeling defeated and I can solve the problem, I'm less likely to feel trapped. So that's like an example of where good problem solving will sort of arrest or stop the movement from left, from defeat to entrapment. Or, for example, if you're feeling trapped, what increases the likelihood that you might become suicidal? Well, if I'm feeling trapped and I'm really socially isolated, or I feel that I'm a burden on those around me, or if I feel disconnected, I'm much more likely to feel suicidal. And so that sense of being a burden, that sense of support or isolation, there are these motivational moderators which help us understand who is more likely to move from feeling trapped to suicidal. And so although often in the model we frame it as risk, so the presence of all these factors lead to risk, the motivational moderators and the threat to self-moderators help us identify what we describe in psychological terms as targets that we could focus on, which will hopefully protect somebody from moving from defeat to entrapment to suicidal thinking. So there's the motivational phase. You have the defeat or humiliation, which leads to entrapment, which then could lead to suicidal ideation and intent. What causes someone to start shifting over from just ideation to I'm actually going to do something? So we're moving to the volitional part of this. Yeah, so the volitional phase, which is the third part of the model, and it's our attempt to try to identify what we think is about 30% of people who have thoughts about suicide we think about 30% percent 
move from thoughts to suicidal acts. And, and that includes fatal as well as non-fatal suicidal behavior. And so according to the model, there are eight key factors, which I call volitional moderators or volitional factors, which increase the likelihood that you make that transition. You act on your thoughts. And they include things like having access to the means of suicide. So it stands to reason, if, I've, if I'm suicidal, and I have ready access to the means of suicide, well, I'm more likely then to act on my thoughts. Uh, because if it's ready access, it means that the environmental constraints on you accessing that method are reduced or are low. And anything which leads to reduced constraints on access to means increases the likelihood that you'll engage in that behavior. And indeed, if you look at the evidence for what works at a public health level to prevent suicide, it is interventions which are focused on restricting access to the means of suicide. That's like, for example, having barriers in places of concern, not having ready access to medication and so on. So that's one of the volitional factors. Others include exposure to suicide. So what we mean by exposure is that if you know somebody else who's died by suicide, and again, it stands to reason that if I have having thoughts of suicide and I know somebody who's died by suicide, I'm more likely to act on my thoughts. And that's because the mechanism could be that if somebody close to you who has died by suicide, that method of death is potentially more cognitively accessible. Or it could be that if that person is like you, you model, you're modeling their behavior. Or it could be that it legitimizes the behavior for you. Because if a loved one uses that method of coping with a distressing situation, well, maybe that's something you would consider. So that's, that's the, one of the, that's the volitional moderators. I'll just say uh, there's eight of them, but I won't go through all eight. I'll do a couple more. Impulsivity is one of the uh, volitional moderators. So again, the idea that if you're having thoughts of suicide and you're impulsive, stands to reason you're more likely to act on your thoughts. And then just maybe two last ones. Second last one in the list, if you, if you read the model, is basically this idea that having mental imagery around dying or death. So, so what we think happens is if somebody is having thoughts of suicide and they're picturing themselves either dying or dead, that's perhaps like a rehearsal mechanism or it could, be, it could act as a sort of habituation of making death less scary. So, that, so then the presence of both thinking about suicide and imagery around death increases the likelihood that you'll act on your thoughts. And then one very last one is past behavior. The single best predictor of any future behavior is whether you've engaged in that behavior in the past. And it's exactly the same for suicidal behavior. So the evidence shows that if you've engaged in suicidal behavior in the past, you're statistically more likely to engage in suicidal behavior in the future or sadly die by suicide. It's important to put that in context because although past behavior is one of the strongest predictors of future suicidal behavior, the majority of people who say are suicidal or have attempted suicide in the past won't do again in the future and will never die by suicide. Okay, so that's the integrated motivational volitional model of suicide behavior. And what this allows you to do as a practitioner or 
anybody, there's points where you can see where you can start doing some preventative things. I'm going to start working here in the motivational part, or I'm going to start working here in the volitional part. So based on your research, not only do you research suicide, but you research suicide prevention. What's the best thing that works in suicide prevention? So I'll answer that in two ways. So you've got large-scale public health interventions have been shown to be effective. That's things that, as I mentioned earlier, on the restricting access to the means of suicide. Anything which restricts access to the means of suicide has been shown to be effective in reducing suicide. So that's good news. That's really good news. Now, that's challenging. For example, in the, in the United States, that's challenging when we think about firearms. That's a really complicated topic to address, given obviously the constitutional implications and so on. So that's a sort of big public health type example. But if I focus in on the sort of individual level, so over the last 20 years, there's been growing evidence that sort of psychosocial interventions, so these are like talking therapies, things like cognitive behavior therapy, have been shown to be effective in reducing suicidal behavior over time. So that's good news. There's a growth in the evidence base for those sorts of talking therapies. There also has been a lot of interest and focus on sort of brief interventions, things like safety planning. And safety planning is an intervention that we've done some work with ourselves over here in the UK. But safety planning was developed by Barbara Stanley and Greg Brown in the United States. And it's an effective intervention, but it's a simple intervention. And it really focuses in on the volitional phase. So if you think about cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, it's more focused on the motivational phase. It's trying to understand the complex factors that lead to defeat and entrapment and suicidal thinking and so on. But a volitional phase intervention like safety planning is trying to interrupt suicidal thoughts so that somebody doesn't cross the precipice from suicidal thoughts to suicidal acts. And it's very, very simple. So the intervention, basically, it's, it, it has six steps. Step one is you work collaboratively with somebody who's suicidal to try to identify the warning signs that a suicidal crisis might be escalating. So hopefully if you can identify in advance, you can intervene and do something to keep yourself safe. And then in steps two, three, four, and five, it helps the individual identify people or places or organizations that they can go to either to distract themselves as the suicidal thoughts might be escalating, or if they feel they cannot keep themselves safe, somewhere to go in crisis or somebody to contact in crisis. And then step six is the last step of this intervention, and it's working again collaboratively with the person to help them keep their environment safe. And by keeping their environment safe, what we mean is basically to increase the distance between them and a method of suicide. If they thought about how they might end their life, what can we do to ensure that when that crisis escalates again, they do not have ready access to the means of suicide? So something like that I would really focus in on, that safety planning. It's only one example as a sort of brief intervention, but a really important one because it's something which intuitively makes sense, Brett, but something we can all be thinking about. And then also on an individual level, if you know someone who you're worried about, we talked about this earlier, don't be afraid to ask them if they thought about taking their own life because 
it's not going to implant the idea in their head to do it. It's just that could actually be the thing that could kickstart them getting the help they need. Yeah, absolutely. And it really, we cannot emphasize that enough. If you are concerned, please ask somebody directly whether they're suicidal. But I appreciate that that's a difficult thing to do. And again, I describe sort of some tips in the book. But in essence, so if the person answers yes, that I am suicidal, I mean, in many respects, that's your biggest fear. If you ask that question and somebody says, well, yes, I am suicidal. So your biggest fear is, well, what do I do next? So what you do next is you just validate validate how they're feeling and say, that must be really difficult for you. That's all we mean by validation. That must be really difficult for you. It's not about trying to solve the problems. It's trying to acknowledge, be, be alongside them in their distress and then encourage them to think about how they might be able to get support if they think they cannot keep themselves safe. And that sort of sense of common humanity, that sense of connection and sort of treating the individual as worthwhile as somebody who's valued in this world because many people who are suicidal don't think that they have a role in society anymore and feel that they are a burden. So anything which promotes connectedness and then encourages them to maybe reach out, speak to their physician, their general practitioner, somebody else in their life who can help keep themselves safe, I would really encourage people to do that. So please, please reach out. Let's talk about a little bit. You talk about this in the book about those who are bereaved by suicide. So family members who had a loved one that that took their own life. How does their grief differ from someone who might have just experienced, you know, someone who died by other causes? And any advice for them on how they can navigate that? And I guess the other question there too would be, what can people do to help those who are bereaved by suicide? Yeah, I mean, again, really important questions. So the grief associated with a suicide is complicated because, of course, any sudden death is devastating. But on top of the sudden death, there's often shame and guilt. And what could I have done differently? And again, I speak as somebody who's twice bereaved by suicide. And in particular with a close friend of mine who who took her own life, I still ask myself today what I could have done differently. And I felt in part responsible for not being able to save her life. And many people bereaved by suicide feel the same. So part of it is trying to be more self-compassionate. No one of us should ever be held or can ever be held responsible for the actions of another person. Recognizing that the prediction of suicide is so, so difficult. And as I said earlier, it's no better than chance. Our ability to predict suicide. And so recognize that every day is different. Every day is different. And it's and that the pain, anger, the steps of bereavement, that people go through them differently. And probably the only certainty about bereavement by suicide is its uncertainty, is its unpredictability. It's some days you might feel okay and other days not. And it can come on in such a unpredictably, obviously. And I suppose it's also recognizing that although as days become weeks and weeks become months, it's all about moving forward. It's not forgetting. It's just you're moving step forward, step forward, step forward. You're changed as an individual. Of course you are. And it's just try, trying to sort of recognize that. And things do become a bit easier. In terms of advice for those who are around those who have been bereaved, again, it's just recognizing that the person is going through unbearable pain. Don't be frightened because one of the big fears, again, is I'll say the wrong thing. 
And again, the advice that I would certainly give, and I know from speaking to countless others who have been bereaved, is as long as somebody treats you with humanity and compassion, you're unlikely to say the wrong thing. And don't judge. It's non-judgmental. Don't try and tell the person how they're feeling. Just be alongside the person and let them know that you'll be with them. You're there if, if they need them at any stage. And please don't cross the road because that still happens. That idea of people who are bereaved by suicide and people cross the road instead of speaking to them. And that's often out of fear of saying the wrong thing. So please, please support each other. Well, Rory, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work in the book? So to find out more about our work, we have a website. The website is www.suicideresearch.info. So that's suicideresearch.info. And the book is available, I think, everywhere. So wherever you tend to get your, your books and Amazon or wherever, or other, obviously, booksellers, the book's widely available. Well, Rory O'Connor, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Brett. I really enjoyed our conversation. My guest today was Rory O'Connor. He's the author of the book, When It Is Darkest, Why People Die by Suicide and What We Can Do to Prevent It. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Check out our show notes at aom.is slash suicide, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives, as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS to check out for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Reminding you to listen to the web podcast, but put what you've heard into action. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.